Let's begin in verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you, or any one of you, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, while it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. As we bow before you this morning in praise and honor and glory of your holy name. You are immense beyond our imaginations. And yet you have made yourself knowable. Mercifully through creation and graciously through your word. Lord, we ask this morning that you would use your word to deal with our souls. We're thankful for the time we can spend in your word. We're thankful for the time that you give us to fellowship. We're thankful for the joy that you give us as believers and laughter that we can have together. You've been so merciful and kind, Lord, in so many ways. And even as we come this morning, we ask that you would continue to shed your grace upon us through the work of your spirit according to the truth of your word. Lord, many of us have had illness in past weeks, and we want to thank you that you have gotten us through those illnesses, and we are, we are back here, able to fellowship and worship with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Some, Lord, are still dealing with illness, and some have gotten some type of sickness even this week. We ask your mercies upon them. You know each and every one of their bodies. You know exactly what they need. And we know you have a plan and purpose for these things from eternity past. Not one thing slips by you. Not one sniffle. Not one cough. So we praise you and give you honor and glory. That even when we think there are things that are too small for you to be concerned about, you have a purpose for all things. We give you honor and glory through your Son, the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 
All right, I want us to look at verses 12 through 19 today. Um, I don't know that we'll get through all of it, but I, my, my goal is to kind of, first of all, give you just a little bit of overview because I want you to see some of this in context. Note that verses 12 through 14 have been set up uh, certainly in an overview by chapters 1 and chapters 2. Uh, and, and then in the beginning of chapter 3, there's this context given of looking at the faithfulness of Moses and looking at the faithfulness of Christ, and Christ is faithful as a son. And then there is this warning that's started uh, right in uh, uh, verse number 7. Um, and in that warning, it's drawn from the Old Testament. And that warning, starting in verse 7, is an illustration that is drawn out out of the Old Testament about the people of Israel. And we spent some time talking about that. So when we get to verse 12, what we see in verse 12 uh, is uh, the warning against unbelief. That's what you see in verse 12. And then in verse 13, you see uh, the cause of the hardness of unbelief. You see a cause of the hardness of unbelief. Uh, and then in verse 14, you see a remedy against unbelief. We're going to go back and work through this, but I want you to kind of have an idea of where we're going. And then in verse 15, after you've been given this warning and the, the cause of the unbelief and the remedy, then the Hebrews writer goes back and he restates uh, in more succinct language what he had done in 7 through 11. He does that in verse 15, and then he proposes these questions based off of what he drew out of the Old Testament. And he brings that forward to remind them of this issue of unbelief and saying this is, this is what the problem was for the people of Israel. All right? And then as he, this is 16, 17, and 18, you see these questions, all right? And as we go through it, we'll kind of answer the questions when we're dealing with verse 12, 13, and 14. Um, those questions are answered, but... He's pointing them to this direction so that in verse 19, they can see that the real issue here is unbelief. It's just unbelief. Um, this is why this is so important. Once again, I'm reminding you, these are texts that people use to try to claim that you can lose your salvation. And that's just completely incorrect. And it's not helpful to believers because many believers have spent many portions or all of their Christian lives in great doubt uh, of assurance of salvation because they've not been able to see rightly what these passages teach because people have taught wrongly that these passages hold to some view that you can lose your salvation and that was the problem with Israel. Well, that's not the problem with Israel is that they were losing their salvation. The problem is, is there's a disconnect between an understanding of the covenant. And in that disconnect, there's not a recognition properly that not all Israel was Israel. And that even among ethnic Israel, many of them did not truly believe and trust in God and his promises. And among Israel, there was a remnant who did. And the remnant, those are the ones who continued in belief. Those are the ones who persevered in the faith. And that's kind of where we're going uh, with that. 
but we want to start to, uh, to unpack some of that uh, just quickly this morning. Well, we'll note uh, as we've gotten to this point that Israel was the illustration for the warning. I, I said this last week, just a little bit of recap. Israel was the illustration for the warning given to the Hebrews listener. But it brings us to two questions. What does this illustration teach and how is the illustration applied? How is this illustration applied? And what we want to do this morning is consider these two questions in the context of verses 12 uh, through 19, but we're going to see it explicitly worked out in verses 12 through 14. What does this illustration teach and how is this illustration applied? Well, firstly this morning, the main use of the illustration is a caution against unbelief in Christ. The main use of the illustration or this illustration is a caution against unbelief in Christ. Uh, if we were to, to take the wording in verse 12 and just, uh, just move it just a little, you could say, brothers, take care. He says, take care, brethren, in some of your texts. But brothers, take care not to have an evil, unbelieving heart. Take care not to have an evil, unbelieving heart. And this is the crux of verse 12. He's saying, look, the evil, unbelieving heart is the problem. And notice how he says that. He calls them brothers when he speaks to them. And secondly, he says, take care. These are very pastoral words here. Uh, some writers have... Uh, thought that this was actually a sermon preached um, that had uh, apostolic backing to it in some way, whether uh, one viewed this letter written by Paul himself or by Luke or maybe by someone else. They thought that this was a sermon preached uh, before a, a group of Hebrew listeners in a way to uh, really appeal to them about what was taking place. And you kind of see some evidence of that possibly when you see some of this language in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3 and verse 12 of chapter 3. Uh, holy brethren, partakers of, of a heavenly calling. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Well, he's using this illustration as, as a warning, a caution against unbelief in Christ. And he says... The problem is an evil, unbelieving heart. This is the problem. Um, and he's already given illustration of that in previous verses. And in the questions that he raises in verses 16 to 18, he's going back to the issue of Israel. And what do we know about Israel? Well, Israel provoked God by distrust and unbelief. By distrust and unbelief. Verse 8 do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Verse 15 and 16. There's a restating in verse 15 and then verse 16, the very first question. For who provoked him when they had heard? They had been given the promises. God had told them exactly what he wanted to do with them. He led them out of Egypt. He gave them promises of what he would do for them. And as he gave them those promises, they were to trust and believe in God because of the promises. But as we read in Exodus and in Numbers, we 
come to a place to realize they didn't follow through with that. They distrusted. There was unbelief among this nation of Israel. And it's really a type of rebellion that the Hebrews writer brings out. They rebelled when they needed water. They didn't trust God for the water. But they rebelled throughout the whole of the wilderness experience. If you go back and you look and you read in Exodus and Numbers and you get a full context of what was happening, and I encourage you to do that this afternoon. Go back and look and read about the wilderness experience and you'll see it's one issue after another. One place of grumbling after another. One place of distrust and unbelief after another. They're constantly... I mean, even... Even after there's judgment pronounced on them in Numbers 14, okay, can, can we recall just for a minute what happens in Numbers 14? There's judgment pronounced, why? All right, they didn't believe the report about the land, so you had a problem. A bad report was brought back about the land, they struggled to believe that God would give the land to them because of the report itself. Instead of trusting God that he was going to give them the land, they trusted the bad report. See? And then after that happens, God says to them, enough, 20 and up, what's going to happen? You'll never see the land. You'll die in the wilderness. So you need to be shepherds and your children will be shepherds in the wilderness until the time has come that you all have died and I will give them the land. All right. Do you remember though at the, at the very next little section what happens right after that? What did the people of Israel do? They went to fight on their own. It was like, hey, okay, we sinned. Sorry, God. Well, now we're going to go up here and fight. And what does Moses do? Moses tells them, this is unwise. Don't do this. The Amalekites, was it the Canaanites and the Amalekites? They're going to lay waste to you. They didn't listen. Moses told them, it's already done. This part's over. God has been patient and loving kind with us for decades. First of all, he brought us out of captivity and then all we did was complain about it. We were warned, we were cautioned. We were given promises that we did not trust. And now God said, I've been patient and loving kind. And then he brought judgment on the nation of Israel. And he says, now you want to go and do something God had told you to do before and you didn't believe and you didn't trust? That's unwise. God has dealt with this now and said, we are to be in the wilderness. Our children will be shepherds until we die and we will not see the land. And he said, don't go up. And what did they do? They go up. And what happens? They die. Not all of them, but many of them. 
the Hebrews writer is writing to these Hebrew listeners because they're going to have this in mind when they read these passages. This is going to be things that they were brought up with as children. These were uh, the, the scriptures that were read to them. This is not something that they'll have to rediscover. This is something they would have known since they were children. And he's saying they were warned. They were cautioned. But they rebelled. The Hebrews writer in verse 16 uses the word provoked here. And as one writer notes, this verb is best translated rebelled. And it's only found here in the New Testament. It means embitter and make angry and is a strong expression. He writes, for the rebellious attitude that characterized the Exodus generation. See, we're not dealing here with God saying, there were some people that were just a, just a little, you know, a little difficult, a little sad. These were some people, they, they were just, they, they were basically good, but they just had some trouble sometimes trusting. No, the Hebrews writer is bringing the Old Testament back to life in front of them to say, I'm telling you right now, these people did not trust God. They did not believe. Every time he walked them to a certain place and he gave them a promise and he told them what to do and he gave them specific ways to worship, they did not believe. Don't make an idol. What'd they do? Make an idol. You're kind of getting the picture of the Hebrews writer. He says, for who provoked him when they had heard? Who rebelled against him when they had heard? Had God not already brought them food? Why would he not bring them water? Had God not already provided for them and kept them all the while that they were in the wilderness? Why would he not give them a land? Why would God withhold something from them that he promised to them? That's not, that would be out of, out of character for God to do such a thing. What they're basically saying is, God, you say you're good, but we don't believe you're good. Whoa. Now, see, you see how serious that gets. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they had a solid memory of that. I think you're right about that. And the other context to that is, is um, it's pretty impressionable for those under the age of 20 to recognize, you know what? 
my parents didn't follow through and listen, and I watched these parents die according to God's judgment. You know, it, it, these kind of things, God bringing judgment like that is, is, is a very impressionable picture. I'm not saying it's about an age of accountability. I'm not teaching that at all. I'm just saying when you get to that point um, that you're in that range of 19, 20 or so years of age, you're, you're really responsible. But even for a teenager that's 12 to 19, you're responsible for your actions. And parents ought to be teaching that to their children when they're very, very young. You're responsible for your actions. So that when they get to be 12 to 19, they understand more what that means. If you wait until a child is older to teach that, you miss the boat. To any of you younger parents or uh, soon-to-be parents or Lord willing to be parents, don't wait. You need to start teaching your children from the time they're very, very young about discipline and consequences and the gospel. So I, I think there's a lot of that mixed in. I won't say more about that now. That's a good point. That's a, that's a good point. So we see the seriousness of this in its context, and it's the whole of the wilderness experience. Um, multiple writers deal with that context. Um, and one writer in particular says, I think we need to note here there is this, uh, this serious issue of the wrath of God. Um, he says, the wrath of God was not something transitory and easily avoided. It lasted throughout the wilderness period. He says, the question, was it not, uh, verse 17, was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? He says, the question, was it not, employs this emphatic word found only in one other place in the epistle. Its use leaves no doubt whatever that God was angry with the sinners in question. And it tells us why their punishment was so severe. Now I want you to think about that in proper context because a lot of people get really upset about teaching that God is a God of wrath and God is a God of judgment. Um, but I want to remind you of all of the kindness and the goodness and the patience of God that was expressed to the people of Israel before he came to that judgment. And this is, this is really a cultural issue we have because of the nature of sin. A, people do not want there to be consequences for decisions and for uh, our actions. We see that rampant in the culture now. Let's defund the police. Let's get judges in there that let people go, district attorneys that let people go. All those things happening in culture all over cities. It's because there is a natural, from the very sin nature, a movement to get away from the idea of consequences of sin. And they want to remove the idea of sin altogether. gives you a context to understand that there is a remedy for all that. The problem is, as humans, we're not willing to deal with God's way. We want to do it our way. And this was the problem with the Israelites. 
even after God told them what would happen, they said, okay, we sinned. They admitted it. We sinned, but we'll go up and fight the Amalekites and the Canaanites. Nah, it's not going to happen that way. Another writer says, And to whom did he swear that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? Numbers 14.11 pointedly says the problem was they did not believe. Go, go, go look at Numbers 14.11. The problem was they did not believe. I want you to consider all that they did not believe just by way of, of summary. God spoke to them through Moses. They, they had... They had God speaking to Moses and then Moses coming and speaking to them. I mean, you can't, you, you almost can't get any closer to God than that. Than God giving you a person that he's speaking directly to and then you get the word of God from that person. God provided promises through Moses. We see the judgment and the wrath here, but think of all the promises that came before. God was saying, you were once in captivity in the land that was not your own, and you would never own it because ancient Egypt was a power beyond power. It's not like you were going to take them over, even though uh, some 400 years after Joseph, they kind of thought you might take them over, but that wasn't going to happen. Because I had a special purpose for you. I wanted to pull you out of that land with all of its plurality or its pluralism and all of its issues. I wanted to pull you out of that land, give you a land of your own where you could worship me rightly. And that could be a picture of a foretaste divine of what it will be like for my people in eternity. Think about all the promises through Moses. Not only were there promises, but God led them to safety through Moses. God gave them someone who spoke to them on his behalf directly. He spoke the promises to them, and he was also a shepherd to them, and he led them to safety. And yet they rebelled against all of it. Now remember, this is speaking of national Israel in a whole context. And we already have noted their the, the disobedience of the many. But we must not forget the belief and faithfulness of the remnant. There is a remnant. As one writer notes, some of the children of Israel had, who had not only heard the commandments and promises of God delivered by Moses, but heard the voice of God at Sinai. Many, they provoked him in disobedience. But not all of them. Not all of them. For not only Caleb and Joshua, but all the tribe of Levi, all under 20 years of age, and probably many of the women from not being numbered, were not excluded from Canaan. This writer notes, he says, This illustrates the writer's doctrine 
that there, there was a remnant according to the election of grace. Thus it was in the days of Elijah, in the days of Malachi, and also in the days of Paul. Where do you think Paul got the idea of the remnant? Where do you think Paul got the idea of all, all Israel is not Israel? Where do you think Paul got this idea? It's a scriptural idea. Those days of Israel, they were not the eternal rest itself, but they were a precursor and a picture of that rest. They had safe passage out of Egypt. They had food in the wilderness, yet they did not trust God to give them water. Instead, they tested God. And the scripture says they even quarreled with Moses. God said they erred in their heart and did not know his ways. That's Psalm 95.10. They erred in, in their heart and did not know his ways. That's unbelief. Numbers 14.11 says they did not believe. Psalm 95.10 says they erred in their heart and did not know his ways. Well, that's in contrast to Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. He's setting up the context of the new covenant there in Jeremiah 31, but he's also giving us an understanding of what had been going on all, all along the way. What made Joshua and Caleb? What were they? They were part of the remnant. Now, we, we believe Moses was a believer, but he still received judgment for his sin. There were those who believed in the remnant who died, but they were dying because of the consequence and yet, if they trusted and believed in the promise of God that he would care for them and they truly repented of their sin and not trusting him, what would God do? God would keep them just as he kept Moses. There had always been a remnant. But Jeremiah 31 sets up the context for us to understand what it means to be a part of the true Israel, the Israel of God. And it's belief. Believing. Now, the Hebrews writer gets us to a place to help us understand in a more specific way what this belief is about. And he does it by a warning to these Hebrew believers. He says, basically in verses 12 to 14, don't be like those Israelites of old. Hebrew listener, do not provoke God in the same way. If Moses was a faithful leader and he gave exactly what the people of Israel needed to hear at the time, he gave them everything they needed to believe and trust and many of them did not and a remnant did, then he says to that present day Hebrews listener and to us today, don't provoke God in the same way. Listen to the words spoken concerning the Son. And what's he done from chapter 1 all the way to this point? He's told us about the Son. 
He's given us that this is the Son of God. Talked about his deity and who he is. Talked about his humanity and who he is come incarnate. So he says, listen to the words spoken concerning the Son. Listen to the promise of the Son. It's not just that the Son came. It's that the Son came with promises. And not only did he come with promises, but he spoke those promises and he did what? He fulfilled them. This is why the Son is greater than Moses and Moses could only be a type. It's because of who the Son is by his uh, very being, but also because he did something Moses could never do. All the promises that the Son made, he fulfilled them. Moses was not able to fulfill them he had to trust in God to fulfill those promises which he spoke of. But the Son, being one with the Father, the Son fulfilled them in and of himself. Just as the Father has life in and of himself, he has granted it to me to have life unto myself, is what the Son says. So we listen to the promise of the Son, and then we listen and believe the promises fulfilled through the Son problem for these Hebrews listeners comes after the warning in verse 13 because he says, brothers, hardening and unbelief is caused by the deceitfulness of sin. You want to know what happened in Israel? They were deceived by sin. You want to know what's happening to you? If you're not careful, you're going to be deceived by sin. See, if we think back to the garden, the first and greatest sin has always been not to trust God according to his word. What set up the whole of the fall? God said, here it is. Here's this beautiful garden. I made it for you, Adam. I've given you dominion over it. Here it is. Made you a helpmate. She's beautiful. Take care of her. Teach her. Tell her my command. And when the serpent deceived Eve, he deceived her, telling her in no uncertain terms, do not trust God's command. That's what he was saying to her. Well, the Israelites who were killed in the wilderness, they did not trust God's commands or promises as well. And these Hebrews listeners are falling away due to a distrust of the work of Christ. That's the problem here. They're going backwards to something else instead of standing firm in what's presently there. All the promises have been fulfilled in Christ. And they're saying, because of this outside pressure and all my concerns and my stresses and anxiety about the world I'm living in, I'm going to retreat from that which is presently fulfilled in Christ and go back to that which was nothing but a foreshadowing. And to go back to those things is to distrust the promise of God that's fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So he tells them, 
or we have become partakers of Christ. Partakers. We are in Christ. And then he says, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. If we hold fast. Sin's deceitfulness has brought these people to a place that temporal and physical safety is more important to them than trusting in Christ alone. One writer says this is, this is bought only at the price of a spiritual disaster. Thirdly, this morning and lastly, brothers, the only assurance we have is in Christ's person and work. God preserves and those he preserves in Christ will persevere to the end. This is the idea of the holding fast. We're partakers in Christ and when we are partakers in Christ, there's evidence of that because we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. Our works cannot save us, but through the Christ who saves us, good works are produced. And one of those works is perseverance. God preserves, and those he preserves in Christ persevere to the end. One writer notes, careful attention to the wording shows that these lines do not cite what will be true if they hold on, but what is already true of them and which is to be evidenced by their endurance through temptation. Remember, he's calling out to them as brothers. If you ever wanted the wrath of God to be dealt with from a positive perspective, here the Hebrews writer is doing it. He's calling out to these people in warning and caution Yet he's calling them brothers and saying, this is true. We are partakers in Christ. Now he's not pronouncing that he knows their hearts because he's saying those who are true partakers will persevere. There's much discussion over the phrase, until the end. Some people struggle with, is that until the end, meaning the end of the, one, of the believer's life, or is this speaking about the end of the age? And I would make uh, sense of that by saying it's both and. Because the true believer is held all the way in Christ to and at their death, and at their death, their soul is to be with Christ and kept until the final day of the age. I don't know that we need to separate the idea there until the end is a context of dealing with every part of it. Once one dies, they are not lost somehow. No, Christ keeps them. And number two, under this assurance we have in Christ's person and work, the questions and concerns are not based on their works, but are they trusting in Christ's work? That's why he gives these whole section of questions of verse 16, 17, and 18, restating all that he's already given before is to say, you have to ask this question. 
The question is, do we believe that no matter the providence or circumstance, that Christ alone is all we need for life and rest? Do I really believe that? Or is Christ all I need for certain circumstances? And then when there's other circumstances, I need other stuff. You've got to remember the context. These Hebrews listeners are dealing with matters of life and death. There's persecution. And he's saying, are you going to go back to these old things that were promises of old moving forward then, but they've been fulfilled, and now you're going to somehow go back to these things that they have absolutely no ability to save and keep you. They were only about belief looking forward. And now that it's been fulfilled in Christ, the promises are fulfilled in Him. Are you going to go back to something that does nothing? Or are you going to stay with the one thing that does everything? I'm going to leave you with two thoughts. Recognize the importance of making your calling and election sure. Recognize the importance of making your calling and election sure. Who do you place your trust in today? And do you do it every day? I'm not saying do you get saved every day. I'm saying do you recognize that there's still a battle with the flesh going on and that when you wake up tomorrow, you're going to have to make a decision in your mind and thinking about where is my trust today? What do you trust to keep you to the end? Your works? Your righteousness? I hope not. For many of you who have been around here a long time, I hope you don't answer the question that way. Last thought. Recognize the importance of fellowship among believers. Remember, this is being written to a group of believers. He's appealing to a whole group of believers. Now, why do you think he's making an appeal to a whole group of believers and not just one individual? You can sometimes make a personal appeal and it have effect. But this is why I think the corporate body of Christ and why the public preaching of the word is so important. Because when a group of people hears the same promises of God presented to them from the Scripture, those people on the whole can begin to encourage one another in those promises taught. When the one brother or sister is struggling, the others can come along and help. That's a major message. I, I, amen. Amen. I think Leon Morris says it best. He says, They must encourage one another constantly and urgently. The author sees Christian fellowship as very important. It can build up in the faith and form a strong bulwark against sin and apostasy. You realize that's what the devil through his ways is trying to do. He's trying as a wolf to get one of the lambs separated from the whole group. And when he can get that lamb separated, what does he do to it? 
What does this sinful world want to do? It wants to crash in on believers and get some of them separated and pull them apart and wants to say to them, no, 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 don't listen to all that. Listen to us. Look at the world. We've got the answers. We've got it all here. It doesn't matter if it's a small body of Christ or a larger body of Christ. The importance is being a part of a local body of Christ for true, genuine fellowship because we need the encouragement. We need to be reminded of these things, apparently, according to the Lord, one day out of seven. Because it's about six days that we can hold up and we know the honest truth is it's really only about 12 hours because we wake up the next day on Monday morning and we're already struggling sometimes. But when we meet corporately, we have that preached and taught word to hold fast to. We have brothers and sisters who will encourage and strengthen us. The body of Christ is never more important than it is in dealing with the issue of unbelief. Some of you say, well, I don't really have that much to do because I'm not like Brandon or Scott or, or Robin. I don't teach publicly. I don't do this or I don't do that. That's bull. I don't know how, that's probably not the way I should phrase it, but that's just bull. You are very important. Pray for one another. Do you believe God hears your prayer? Do you believe that? The Bible tells us to pray, commands us, gives us promises when we pray. Do you believe it? Do you pray for one another or you just gripe about one another? Grumble about somebody else. Do you lift people up in prayer? I've recognized over the years, it's one of the biggest problems sometimes pastors have is we don't pray for our people. But I see in the scripture where our people ought to pray for each other. You got work to do. Pray. Encourage. Exhort. Strengthen. Don't think you don't have work to do. You are so important in the body of Christ. And this letter proves it. I've gone way over. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've been merciful to us to give us a day to glory in you alone. Help us to remember who we are in Christ Jesus. Lord, please help us not to forget these things. Help us to heed the caution and the warning that even in the struggle, we would long to persevere according to who Christ is and his work and nothing else. We glory in you through your son, the Lord Jesus.